Welcome to the You Are Infinitely Loved podcast. I'm Sam. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Koos. We believe that loving yourself is the key to transforming every aspect of your life. And it's our hope that these conversations bring you one step closer towards embracing this truth. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of You Are Infinitely Loved. We are super excited to be able to share with you a conversation that we had with Sarah Von Bargen. Sarah is a writer and blogger who helps people spend their money, time, and energy on purpose. She's also the creator of Bank Boost, Habit School, and the No Grocery Challenge. She is such a wonderful woman doing really important work in the world, and it was so exciting to speak to her about the ways that you can create a more intentional life and how that is one of the most self-loving things you can do. We really hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed speaking with Sarah. So let's get to the episode. I've been following your work, Sarah, online for quite a while now. And one of the things I'm most impressed with is how you live with intention. Thank you so much. I try very hard. <laughs> yeah, it, it can, you can tell. Um, and I think, you know, our podcast is all about how do we love ourselves well Mm-hmm. And how do we, you know, continue to build practices around self-love? Mm-hmm. And we know that you just cannot do that without intention. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of where we've just been so interested in your thoughts on that, where you are, how you kind of built your life around intention, what that's looked like for you. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, I would say for me, and this sounds like, oh, Sarah, that's so obvious. But in my work with my students and my clients, I have found that it is not obvious that everything starts with knowing yourself and understanding what makes you happy because Mm -hmm. it is hard to create habits, um, pursue goals, um, figure out where your time, money, and energy are going. If you don't understand what makes you happy. I think we've all probably had the experience where we unconsciously subconsciously opt into a belief system that when we get X or Y, then we'll be happy. And then we get it and we're not. And then when we we sort of work backwards and we realize like, oh, you know, if I would have been honest with myself, if I would have taken a little bit to like get quiet and look inward, I could have figured out two years ago that reaching this goal wouldn't make me happy. But now I've spent two years and potentially thousands of dollars pursuing this thing that I thought would make me happy um, and doesn't. Mm -hmm. So it might sound too basic, but starting with understanding yourself and what you want and what makes you happy can be the bedrock, can be the building block for, for everything in your life and for setting up a life that feels lovely and expansive and abundant and supportive. And if you don't do that work, it's very easy to end up in a place that you don't want to be, even if it looks good to other people. So Sarah, I am guessing you did not learn this from reading it in a book. (laughs) (laughs) I learned it by spending $18,000 on a master's degree I don't really use. Uh Uh-huh, there it is. (laughs) Would you, like, give us a little bit of your background. How did you get into the work that you're doing? Maybe tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing. Sure. And how you got there. Sure. Um, So my elevator pitch, my Instagram bio is, I teach people how to spend their time, money, and energy on purpose. And a lot of my work is based around that, figuring out um, what makes you happy and how to make your spending align with that, how to set up habits that support that, how to pursue goals that support that. I have been getting paid to write for almost 20 years. I 
was an English major in college. I worked in journalism and advertising. I burnt out on that. I became an ESL teacher um, and lived abroad for a long time. And when I moved back to America, I had a really hard time reacclimating um, to life in the US and I needed a creative outlet. So I started a blog and because I was an experienced writer and I had some basic knowledge of marketing and I'm also a total workhorse, <laughs> I found success in the blogging world. And so I would write about things that I felt weren't necessarily being discussed in mainstream media or even in blogs at the time. Like, I think if you look back, I wrote a blog post about self-love in like 2011. And I remember even feeling like the word self-love seemed so like, oh, you know, <laughs> so like weird and squeaky. Oh, we struggle with it. Yes. yes. And I mean, that was years ago that I was, that I was writing about it. That was before it was cool, Sarah. <laughs> I, yes. Um, so I sort of, the blog has evolved and the stuff that I write about has evolved a little bit over the years as I've sort of, you know, as I've changed and I've found like, okay, well, I've, I've always tried to chase like, what are the things that I want to talk about that I feel are not being addressed elsewhere? Like, what are things that I kind of view as commonly held myths? And what can I do to create something to counteract those myths or to support other people who are navigating life? Like, I'm struggling with this thing. I feel like I found a way to, to deal with it. I imagine other people are struggling with it. How can I, how can I share what I've figured out around it? Yeah. One of the things that we read of your work that we really, really um, resonated with was this concept of authenticity mm, tax. Mm -hmm. And I would love it if you could just talk a little bit more um, about what that is, because I think authenticity tax really relates to this idea of really getting to know yourself and living your life on purpose mm -hmm. and intentionally. The authenticity tax is the term that I use for the pushback or the side eye or the snarky, low-key judgmental comments <laughs> that you get <laughs> when you make really intentional life choices. And I'm not saying that mm -hmm. like, every life choice you make has to be like counterculture or anything like mm -hmm. I'm like I'm heterosexual and married to a man, you know, and we live in a Midwestern town. And, you know, there are a lot of choices that I make with my life that might look very traditional. Like you don't have to reject everything that society has ever suggested for you. But when mm -hmm. you make choices on purpose, they're probably going to run counter to some people's choices, maybe the family mm -hmm. that you grew up in. Um, your friends, your coworkers, um, and it is very likely that you're going to get pushback on it. I remember um, when I was living abroad uh, at a Christmas dinner, a family member asked me what I was, quote, running from. Um, <laughs> I recognize yeah, that. <laughs> yes, yeah, like as though you can't just live in another country because you want to. When I was when I was living abroad um, at a at like a party full of my friends across a bonfire, another friend asked me, you know, very publicly and loudly, like how I was ever going to meet a nice guy if I kept traveling. You know, I've gotten tons of questions about being self-employed. Also, when I proceed, <laughs> I feel like we have a very similar. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, because yeah. this is because the choice is like when I my husband was previously married. I'm a stepmom, so I got questions about that. Um, I was raised Christian. My husband is Jewish. My grandma literally asked me, doesn't that bother you? <laughs> and I think she, I don't think she meant it in like an anti-Semitic way. I think she was literally asking 
like, is it hard to celebrate other holidays? But mm. so, and the thing is like, almost no matter what choice you make, like, even if you make the world's most traditional choices, there will prop, if, if that choice is right for you, someone is going to have pushback. Mm-hmm. Someone is going to make a comment. So I think just knowing, especially if you're making non-traditional choices, that knowing going into it, this is the price that you pay. And, and also knowing that like one snarky comment is a pretty low cost of entry versus doing something that's not not right for you for years and years in hopes that there are fewer snarky comments made. Hmm. Yeah. I am curious, Sarah, and this is probably a little bit selfish because it relates to my own life (laughs) and just hearing your story. I'm like, hmm. Which is exactly why we do a podcast. We just want to talk to people and figure out our life. Fair enough. (laughs) To just record it. (laughs) It's very tactical. No, um, so the work that I did before I was working in the self-love space was with people repatriating after living abroad because for me, one of the things that I found was that it was much harder to kind of move home mm-hmm. um, than it was to move abroad. Mm-hmm. That the the shock, almost like that, you know, people have called it reverse culture shock. Yeah. And just that experience of re-entry and coming back home was a really difficult one to navigate. Mm-hmm. And one that at the time there wasn't, again, no one was really writing about mm-hmm. it. It was written about in very strange kind of clinical terms. And I think one of the things for me was that that experience of repatriating was, I guess, my biggest kind of um, point in my life where it really did help me get to know myself Mm -hmm. because I think that experience of living abroad and being outside of your own environment and then being brought back to that original environment, you have this kind of huge insight into who you are and what makes you happy, what doesn't make you happy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that other people can't have that but I feel like it accelerates that process so I'm just wondering how much of your experience in I guess when you said that you moved back uh, after being abroad and that you found it difficult to readjust to life back in the U.S. do you feel like that experience helps you to get clear on what it is that I guess your values and who you are and and the way that you do want to live? Oh my gosh yes I would say it's sort of it's sort of like doing a whole 30 for your soul, (laughs) you know, it's like (laughs) removing all of like getting enough space from these things that you believe to be foregone conclusions, getting them Mm. out of your brain, your mind, your heart, your life, and then coming back, you know, being like deluged and reintroduced to these things. I think it, it gives you the space to sort of realize like, you know, I know everybody else is is doing X, Y, or Z, but I've had five years, seven years where that wasn't part of my life. And I am actively choosing to opt out of that. Um, and, and of course some things are easier to opt out of than others, but because I lived so many years of my life out of a backpack, like even to this day, like before capsule wardrobes were a thing, like even to this day, I have maybe like 45 items of clothing. I have four <laughs> pairs of shoes. Yeah. Like I never have, I've never gone back to having a huge full closet after years of having, um, just living out of a backpack. Um, and there, there are other things too in my life that I just never, I never went back. I never sort of re-embraced. So I think the the good thing about repatriating, even though it's incredibly emotionally challenging, is it puts you in a place to consciously and intentionally decide what you're going to 
put back into your life. And it also, you know, having lived in other cultures, maybe watching how a different culture navigates family or navigates career or even like what time of day they eat or what they eat for breakfast. Like having had that experience, you can say like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to eat savory food for breakfast (laughs) or like, (laughs) I'm not going to eat until 8 p.m. Yeah. Oh, you're talking crazy talk now. I know. I know. But it seems seems crazy, but like in the Midwest, sweet breakfast and eating dinner at 6 p.m., that's like religion. And so, you know, if you spent four years living in Spain and you come back and everybody wants to eat dinner at 6 p.m., like that can be really hard. This is a really interesting conversation, mostly because I'm an immigrant. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in Indonesia Mm -hmm. and um, I actually left home when I was 13, even though it was like I still went to an, a boarding school in Indonesia, mm-hmm. but it was an international high school. Mm-hmm. So at a very young age, I was already learning about the different culture I could have. And it's not just, you know, a culture of a, a bigger city. It's a Western culture mm-hmm. because it was an international high school. And then I moved to the States. What's really interesting to me is that me going back to Indonesia it's, it seems like this um, culture shock is not just Westerners going to an Eastern country and coming back and be like, what is this Western culture? Mm-hmm. For me, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm, when, whenever I you know, visited home in Indonesia, I also felt the same way. Like, oh my gosh, what is this Eastern culture? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't understand this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like it's, it's a pretty global feelings for it, regardless of where you're from mm-hmm. and where you're traveling to mm-hmm. that you just feel a shock of the culture that you had it's almost like you take a break from the culture you're in and you go outside mm-hmm. and it gives you the space to reflect on the culture you were in and being able to see what worked and didn't work mm-hmm. because when you're just deep in the culture you're in you just don't know any different mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a, I I don't know if it's David Foster Wallace, but there's some great essay about like fish and water and how the fish isn't aware that it's in water. Um, Mm -hmm. Because like when you grow up in a, in a culture or a community, like it's what's normal and it can be really hard to switch to a different culture because you might think like, oh my God, why can't anybody stand in a line? And like, you know, all the things, (laughs) I'm sure we've all had that experience. Um, But then when you come back, like all those things that you just took for granted and you thought like, this is, you know, like, of course, healthcare costs this much. Of course, you go into debt for university. Like, of course, you have a 45 minute commute. Obviously, you have to eat lunch at your desk, you know, Hmm. and then when you've had space away from that, and you come back and everyone you know, has just accepted those things as like, well, of course I commute 45 minutes each way and eat at my desk and I don't get home till 7.30. Like it can, it's so hard. And and also like, if if you're the only person in your social group who's had that experience, your friends are 100% not interested in hearing about all the ways your home country is screwing up and how like things were so much better in the place where you lived before. They, they do not want yes. to hear that. Yep. So, Sarah, here's a question for people who have not had that expat um, or immigration situation. What would you say are the ways that you help people figure out what their values are and what, you know, brings them joy, what who they want to be, how they want to do that? Mm -hmm. What are tools that have worked for you? Um, Well, so if you Google yes and yes, how to figure out what makes you happy, I have a big blog post where I sort of outline 
the, the strategies that I use. But two of the biggest things that I recommend, and they're both incredibly simple, is one just starts with noticing. So notice when you're really happy and literally make a note of it in your phone. That's it. Like I have a whole note document in my phone that's, you know, like probably 25 bullet points deep of things that make me happy. And some of the, and a lot of these are things just like having a fresh manicure, um, having, hanging out with friends outside of like, like having drinks or a dinner party, like doing something sort of outside the normal with my friends, um, being in the water, not a pool, but like in a natural body of water. So anytime I notice that I'm really happy, I look around and I think like, what are the specifics of this situation? And I make a note of it in my phone. And the more you do that, the more you will see sort of like the threads that connect all of these things. And when you know what makes you happy, it's much easier to recreate. Like if I realize that meeting friends for a meal on a weekday in the middle of a weekday makes me happy. Okay, great. I can just like schedule that into my calendar. And then I'm not, I have basically like a, a prescription. Like if, like if I'm feeling down or mopey, I literally can like look at this list of things that I know are proven solutions to this. So that's one incredibly easy thing to do. The other thing that I think is, especially if you are sort of like, if you're like a high achiever or if you're sort of a, if you're a type A personality, a lot of us have a tendency to, we only want to do things we're good at. And we want to do things that are like monetizable or we can be really professional at them. So I encourage people to think about like, what did, what did you like and what made you happy in like third grade before you were concerned about like making the varsity team? Like, can I put this on my college application? Am I good enough at this to like be a professional who charges people? Like when you just like to do something because it made you happy, what was it? Because whatever it was, there's probably an adult version of it. Like if you loved putting on plays for your neighbors, you can be in community theater productions. You can start a YouTube channel. Did you like drawing for the fun of it? You can still do that when you're a grown up. Like, did you love putting on fashion shows with your sister? Okay, well then like be more intentional about the clothing that you wear, you know, put together a really cute outfit that you love and then find a place that you can go where like that outfit is appropriate. So those sound really <laughs> basic, but I think that they're really good jumping off points is just noticing when you're happy and literally making note of it, like physically, don't just like think like, oh, this makes me happy, but write it down somewhere. Because when you yeah. take note, you're um, developing the neural pathway that will make it easier to access again in the future. And think about what you loved as a kid when you were before you got too hung up about like, if you were good enough. Sarah, are you saying that I don't have to be perfectionist and figure everything <laughs> out before I do something? Yes, yes. Which I mean, like I'm a Virgo, INTJ, Enneagram one. So like, this is a pep talk I have to give myself. Oh, oh my gosh. I am also Enneagram one. <laughs> then you, you know, were exactly. so curious. Yes. We were like, is she a one or a three? Well, <laughs> so I thought I was a three, but I'm a, when I took it, I was like a one, seven, three, which... I think that I'm, yes. yeah, I can, that I'm makes seven. sense. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I'm those, a seven. <laughs> those are all the ones where like, she's got to be either, either one of these three, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you brought it up, not us. We're trying not to be Enneagram nerds, oh, yeah. but there it is. I only took it recently because I took like the short version because when I found the, like the big proper version, I was like, oh, this is too long. Um, yep. That's why I only took it very recently.
Yeah. One of the things that I would love to talk to you more about is also, I mean, you, you talk about a number of things on your blog and um, on your social media, but one of the areas that you talk about a lot is finances mm-hmm. and money. Um, and I think this is like a really interesting thing because, you know, as we said, our podcast is about self-love mm-hmm. and it might not be something that comes to mind when we think of self-love is finances, but I really believe, you know, there is a link mm-hmm. between yeah how we treat ourselves, how we love ourselves and how we spend our money Mm -hmm. and our finances. And I would love just to, to hear your thoughts on that and to hear a little bit about how, you know, your money is an area that, yeah, is, is linked to your opinion of yourself, to the way that you treat yourself and just, yeah. If you could talk a little bit to the link. Oh my gosh. Yes. Those two things. Yeah. So what I have, is there one? We're assuming, we're making assumptions <laughs> that you feel this way. Oh, no. I mean, money is, money is everything. Like our relationship to money is just a mirror of our relationship to ourselves. Um, so what I have found in, with, with many of my students who've taken bank boost or put your money where you're happy is, is that, Many, many people use shopping as a stand-in for true self-love or self-care. So instead of having the hard conversation, instead of, you know, going to bed at a, you know, like if you don't have, if you're not getting eight hours of sleep, it's hard to do anything. But instead of going to bed, they go shopping. Instead of, you know, going to therapy, they go shopping. Instead of like taking a walk or taking a bath or you know, reading a book that, you know, their favorite book, they go shopping. Also, because I think a lot of self-love and a lot of self-care, it's not just bubble baths. Like a lot of it can be like (laughs) tough stuff, you know, like having a really honest conversation with your partner, having boundaries with a family member or a coworker, like true self-love can be tough. And it is much, yeah. much easier to self-soothe by buying like novelty throw mm-hmm. pillows than it is mm-hmm. to tell your sister like, no, I'm not going to lend you money and sorry, you're not invited to this family picnic because every time you come, you get drunk. Like it is so much easier mm-hmm. to go shopping than do that stuff. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when you put it that way. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what a lot of people do. Um, so one of the things that we work on in Bank Boost is... And, and one of the things that I, I think is different about the way that I teach money is I have a very non-deprivational approach. Like my goal is not to make you hate your life and live on coupons. My goal is to help you fill your calendar in your life with things that legitimately bring you joy so that you're not only seeking joy through purchasing things. I mean, sometimes like sometimes buying stuff is awesome. And sometimes the things that you buy dramatically improve your life. I am talking about my Roomba vacuum cleaner. (laughs) Like, but a lot of times the stuff that we're buying is just us self-soothing instead of taking action in our life or doing something that truly would make us better, feel better. Like instead of you have a bad day at work and instead of like going home, you know, like changing into something comfortable and like, calling your best friend to talk about it, you drive to Target and spend $120. So I teach them how to create healthier responses to that and make for sure that they are, you know, scheduling fun and pleasure and joyful things that often have a lower price point um, than mindlessly buying things to fill a hole. 
Yeah. And for anyone listening, Sarah on her website has a great resource, uh, which is essentially an ebook with with some amazing questions to ask yourself before you make a purchase yes. so that you can stop buying. Yes, it is called <laughs> how to I don't, don't I won't swear on your podcast, you so I'm not allowed swear. to, but it's it's um, called How to Stop Buying Ish You Don't Need. Yeah. <laughs> and um yeah, I think it's really helpful. Um the other thing I wanted to talk to you about in relation to money and finances is is the concept of, of shame and that so many of us have shame around our money. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, I mean, shame is obviously kind of, you know, the opposite to self-love is, is when we shame ourselves. And one of the Instagram posts that, that I liked of yours was when I'm just going to read out the quote here. Mm-hmm. You say, talking about money is a gift to everyone around mm-hmm. you. And you go into this idea of, you know, we need to kind of talk about money. And so if you could just take a moment here to, to talk a little bit about, how we can get over money, shame, and how we can bring some of these things to the light. Oh, absolutely. Well, I have found with pretty much almost any topic, if you can be, if you can, if you start talking about it lots of times, especially if you're not like in some huge group setting, um, but if you're like Mm -hmm. talking in a small group or with your friend one-on-one, if you broach the subject with a friend that you have a trusted relationship with, 90% 90% of the time, they are going to join you in that topic. I don't know if you read the blog post associated with that um, Instagram quote, but yeah. it was, um, we were at a, a friend's house. They had just moved into this new house. It's a nice house and a nice neighborhood. And I know what their jobs are. And I have a pretty good idea of like how much they make and the house in the neighborhood and how much I was pretty sure they make didn't a hundred percent aligned, but I wasn't going to be like, so what's up with that? Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, there, you know, we'd all been drinking wine all night and someone, I forget how it came up, but somehow it came up that they, you know, about the house and somebody's like, Oh, you know, this is a great house. And they essentially said, Oh yeah. Uh, his parents gave us the 20% down payment. And mm. I just immediately was like, Oh, Okay. Like, I don't have to feel bad about myself anymore. Like, I don't need to feel bad that we can't, that we don't live in this neighborhood because they couldn't live in this neighborhood unless their parents had helped them out. And they don't need, like, how great for them that they're in a situation that they can live in that neighborhood. But just knowing that just immediately just took a weight off my shoulders of, like, shame that we didn't have a 20% down payment for a half a million dollar house when we were like 30. Um, So that just, and that kind of stuff, or even like talking about, you know, how much school debt you have or, or Mm -hmm. like, so I have a, um, I drive a 2008 Toyota Prius uh, that I bought in cash, which Mm -hmm. is that I paid, it's totally paid for in full, but like it's a 2008, like I love it. It's great. It gets amazing gas mileage. I will just continue buy, buying Priuses for the rest of my life, even if I end up being a millionaire. But like, if anybody asks me about it, I'll be like, oh yeah, I bought it in cash. You know, like if you look like, look, here are the things, here's the ding. Here's where I, you know, literally topped up the paint with the little paint thing that comes with it. Like, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, I think it can be a little bit hard if you are, you always want to be conscious about like whose money story you're sharing because you know like maybe you maybe your partner has credit card debt and they're not following all they they're the ones who get to talk about that you don't need to be telling people about your partner's credit card debt or 
or your partner's yeah. school debt. So you want to, you know, be a little bit careful about it. But I think talking about those things or saying like, oh, you know, we're worried about, you know, where we're, where the kids are going to go to college or like, you know, we're encouraging the kids to do post-secondary because we can't afford to send them. To, we can't afford to pay for four years of, of private college. Just if you are willing to start that conversation where you're comfortable, very frequently people are going to join you there. And also like, you, A, you never know what suggestions they might have. Like if you say, oh, you know, we're worried about sending the kids to college and they might say like, oh, well, actually, you know, have you looked at this program or these scholarships? So you, you never know what solutions people might have. Mm-hmm. And if you don't tell them about it, they're, you're not going to find those solutions. And also like, who knows what they're thinking about your life? And just you saying, like, they might think everything's perfect and that you're, you know, a bajillionaire. And then you're like, yeah, actually, you know, we've only saved like 10 grand for the college fund. You just acknowledging Mm. that is probably going to make them feel a lot better about the fact that, you know, maybe they're carrying some credit card debt or, you know, they had to refinance their house. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. It's, you know, sometimes there's so much shame and the shame can come from us making assumptions about things that where we think we know what someone else's story is. And the reality is, you know, we, we often mm-hmm. don't, we don't know what's yeah. going on. And so the more, yeah, we can have these kind of open, honest, transparent conversations when they're appropriate, then the better it is for mm-hmm. everyone. I think we just make such massive assumptions as oh, well yeah. about other people that, that follow our own script of shame. Mm-hmm. I'm lacking, something's wrong with me. And so um, that makes sense why they have that thing and I don't, Mm -hmm. as opposed to gathering more data that would be, I don't know, accurate. Yes. (laughs) And I think, and these statistics are pretty depressing, but it's also worth remembering that the average um, American carries $6,000 worth of credit card debt and 40% of middle-class Americans couldn't navigate a $400 um, financial, unexpected financial, like a bill. Mm, So like, that's Mm -hmm. awful. But it's also like, if you're in that situation, if you're one of those people, you are literally average. There are tens of millions of people who are in the exact same situation as you. And it shouldn't Mm -hmm. be that way. And I have a lot of feelings about the American (laughs) college system and healthcare system that have put us all in this situation. But again, if you are in that situation, you are literally average. Mm -hmm. One other thing that I'm curious if you've come across at all in the work that you do around, around money and happiness and is do you ever find because I think sometimes people use um self-love as kind of like oh no I'm gonna buy this for myself because I'm treating Mm. myself so this is a self-loving thing to do to buy this whatever it may be Mm -hmm. (laughs) extravagant item or go on this amazing holiday and actually they're like no but this is this is self-love this is self-care I'm I'm giving this to Mm me when really if it's something that is you know beyond their means I would (laughs) Like, do you find that people use that as kind of an excuse to allow themselves to buy whatever they Oh my gosh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I actually am in the process of, of writing a blog post about um, the I deserve it loophole. Um, mm. And so something that I have found that I think is really helpful for people to think about. So every time you hear yourself saying inside your mind, I deserve this, I think it mm. is very important to sort of follow that behavior down the line and look at how it actually affects you. So let's say that you tell yourself, I deserve this luxury holiday because I've been working so hard, even though you can't afford it. What you are actually saying (laughs) is I deserve thousands of dollars of credit card debt. If you Mm. are 
Like, let's say you're lactose intolerant, but you love ice cream. You come home from a hard day of work and you say, you know what? I deserve this ice cream because I had a hard day. What you're actually saying is I deserve hours of stomach upset or <laughs> don't judge me, Sarah. <laughs> don't judge me. Or too close. Too yes, close. Yeah. Or like I deserve, I've had a long day. I deserve to scroll Instagram for an hour and a half. What you're actually saying is I deserve to feel bad about my body and my income. So, and I mean, there are things like if I said to myself, you know, like I deserve to take a walk to the botanical gardens with my dog. Great. I deserve to feel calm and centered and see beautiful things. Or I deserve to take 20 minutes to read this chapter from my favorite book. I deserve to feel calm. I deserve to smile. I deserve to like, you know, re-enter the rest of my work day feeling relaxed. But a lot of the a lot of the self-love and self-care that we engage in without really challenging ourselves and thinking about it, it is not helpful. It's not beneficial. So anytime, if you're on the fence about some self-care, follow that behavior down the line and, and how is it actually impacting you? And next time you find yourself thinking, I deserve this, what is the end result of this thing that you quote unquote deserve? And do you deserve, do you deserve to have an upset stomach for two hours? Do you deserve to have thousands of dollars worth of credit card debt? I would hope not. That's not a very self-loving thing to do to yourself. <laughs> There's some deeper issues there. If you feel like you deserve those <laughs> <Yes>. things. <laughs> yes. So Sarah, have you had any, have you done any work with your clients where they're thinking, okay, I am going to, let's say train for a new mm -hmm. job that I know will be making mm -hmm. a lot of money, but I don't think I enjoy doing it, but the money is really, really good. Um, right. Cause then you end, up, you, you end up, they end up working, being in a work situation where they might not love their mm -hmm. job, but they know they, they make a lot of money. Well, I haven't, but then. Oh unhappy. gosh. Well, so I haven't had that exact situation um, with any of my one-on-one -on -one clients, but I would say my general response to the sort of like happiness, money, stability, follow your passion question is like, to me, there's a difference between a high paying job that makes you absolutely miserable, drives you to therapy and like makes you engage in unhealthy self-soothing behavior. There's a difference between that job and like a high paying job that it's fine, whatever you go. Does it light your fire? No, but then you come home and you get to do other things that you really enjoy. To me, those things are different. Um, and I think it's also important to think about, are you, this all this money that you're making, What's what are you doing with it? Like, if you are making a lot of money because it's gonna, you're gonna pay off all your school debt, or you're making a lot of money because you wanna send some home to your family, that lives in a different country or because your parents have really high health care costs. I think it is totally okay for you to take a average, not soul on fire, but doesn't make you miserable job. If that money is going towards something that you are very passionate about and that you make for sure that the hours of your life that are not spent at work are filled with things that fill you up. And also if you're not necessarily planning on like, being at this boring job for the rest of your life. But if you actively hate the high paying job, it, I mean, don't do it. <laughs> like, like that's your life. Like that's 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week of your life that you're spending doing something miserable. Like you cannot attach a price tag to that. 
Well, we're all quitting our jobs now. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, we actually all love our jobs. So yeah. Um, yeah. sometimes when I am scrolling on the Instagram and I come across your stuff, I notice a lot of times um, you'll take a photo of, you know, kind of what you're doing mm-hmm. right now. Like, um, I love that. And I'm always like, oh, I wish I could join mm. up for that coffee. <laughs> Not in a creepy stalker <laughs> way. Um, of but I'm wondering, like, what for you right now is working in terms of taking really good care of yourself, um, your your rituals, your routines? Mm-hmm. What kind of fills you up? Um, well, so I am extreme. I'm a huge proponent of daily habits. I have a whole course about it. Um, but so I have very actively cultivated a morning, a set of morning habits um, and a set of pre-bed habits that really, really bring me joy um, and make me happy and set me up for success. Like truly one of the favorite, one of my favorite parts of every single day is reading fiction in the morning with my dog, drinking coffee out on the porch before I do anything else. Like truly sometimes I'm in bed at night and I'm like, oh, I'm so excited to like sit with Loretta and read my book in the morning. Which, I mean, the the simple pleasures truly are the best ones. So I would say just, and and I haven't really added anything else to, because my my habit stack is like, it's it's like eight habits deep. (laughs) I don't, I don't, I I don't think I have the wherewithal to add anything else on top of it. Um, But just sort of putting in the time and effort to, to think about like what, what supports me, um, what feels good, what contributes to the person that I want to, what I want to be, that I want to be, and then creating habits around it and doing them pretty much every day. What would you say is the most important thing you would want people to know about living intentionally, living really well? What are kind of the benefits of that? What would kind of be the drug that lures Mm. them in if they are not on board with this? Oh, gosh. Well, I would say just to go back again to figuring out what makes you happy. And once you figure that out and you sort of start plugging that stuff into your calendar, making a conscious decision to include those things in your life. Like if we had the camera on, I would show you guys, I have like written out and taped next to my desk, a list of 14 things that make me happy. And I actively put those things into my calendar. So I make for sure that I'm experiencing them on a daily or weekly basis. And I think once you do that, once you, and these are not fancy things. These are literally like, you know, I, it's on my list, reading fiction with Loretta in the morning, looking my cutest, trying a new recipe. It's not hard to add these things to my life. And once you do that, once Mm. you do things on a pretty much daily basis that, you know, make you happy, like life gets easier. You're more patient. You're a better partner. You're a better parent. You're a better coworker. Um, You realize you don't need to self-medicate with shopping or eating or Netflixing or gossiping or Instagram holes. Like things just get easier and nicer when you take care of yourself and consciously add the things that make you happy to your life. And once you experience that, it's hard to go back to sort of numbing out and denying yourself things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, really is a beautiful summary of, you know, this is how you take care of yourself and you treat yourself with love and kindness is by really getting to know what brings you joy and, and taking the time to, to spend your time and your energy and your money Mm -hmm. in that way. So 
we just want to thank you so much for being with us today because we know you are someone that lives so intentionally and that is very kind of conscious of how you spend your time and energy. So we're just so grateful that you gave us your time and energy this morning and that you've been so generous in what you've shared. We know it's going to be really, really helpful for us. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Our hope is that each day you feel more connected to the knowledge that you are infinitely loved. If you want to continue this conversation, you can find us at youareinfinitelyloved.com.